Welcome to Riot Etiquette, the Young Radical's Guide to Maintaining Manners in the Midst of Mace. I'm your host, Brian. This podcast is intended to provide definition and context around terms and concepts in this new era of protesting. Today I want to talk about bias in the media coverage of protesting and direct actions. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming I don't have to talk too much about bias in the media on a national level. I want to highlight the pervasive bias brought by local media in reporting on some of these stories. Accidental or not, ignorance of this bias means even well-intentioned reporters can feed into narratives being woven by bad-faith actors and accelerationists around current events. Here's a simple story. One night, I went downtown to walk around and see if there were any protest actions going on. I found a crowd of several hundred students at the university where out-of-town organizers and leaders of area nonprofits were speaking. News cameras were there, but I didn't recognize any medics or black bloc. I've been to enough of these things to pretty comfortably guess that this event was going to be all speeches, uh, march up to the Capitol, maybe march around the square, more speeches, and then dissipate. Around the time the organizers started inviting white women to speak whose only offered qualification was that they had raised a million dollars for the Boys and Girls Club, I figured it probably wasn't that important for me to be there every moment and took off to wander around downtown. I later found out that the event was organized by a handful of nonprofits in coordination with the former mayor and staff from the current mayor's office. The last thing those groups are generally interested in is any form of direct action, so it makes sense that there were no medics present. I figured I'd hang around, catch up with them when they hit the Capitol for a bit, then head home early. I work 50 plus hours a week, so I have to be pretty strategic about where I put my time if I want to get any sleep at all. Some blocks later, I heard a noise I couldn't quite place. I followed it and saw a medic with kit that looked familiar, then a member of Black Bloc. Then I crested the hill and saw a group occupying the street outside the county courthouse. It was small, maybe 30 people? Black Bloc and medics and a handful of people dressed more like me. The speakers sat on a concrete outcropping across the street from the courthouse, with most attendees sitting distance from each other scattered throughout the street. It was an energy I have trouble explaining. It was intimate. Passionate. It felt like a moment only for those who had already put themselves on the line. Not a massive action, but an important one, still. Black organizers spoke to the assembled protesters of the things that had happened and what was to come. The people already lost, the tactics in play, the cost of action, but more importantly, the price of inaction. In the background of all these speeches, we heard the quote-unquote main protest march reach Capitol Square. Vague impressions of their chants drifted by on the breeze. A group of six to eight people approached the smaller action from that larger one, all black folks. I recognized the county president of the Boys and Girls Club. They approached the speakers and were handed the megaphone. It was only then that I realized how many white people had been on the stage at the event I saw on the library lawn of the campus earlier. The president gave a speech that was similar to the one he had given at the college, but adapted to the crowd present. Less talk of peace, more language of solidarity, saying he understood not explicitly condoning their anger or direct actions, but not condemning either. I found myself wondering, which was the real speech? Was this a man going through the motions at the public marches covered by local media who felt true solidarity with these more hardcore protesters? Who felt free to let loose once his white donors weren't around? Or was it the reverse? Which crowd got the real speech that night? They left. The original organizers started speaking again. In the background, the quote-unquote main protests started marching, but didn't stick to walking just the square and rerouted down a side street. The small protest continued. A couple members of Black Bloc shifted down the street, I thought to reinforce the impromptu traffic barricade, but they soon returned with a, a massive flag, maybe 20 feet long. They laid it out on the street outside the courthouse and called for any alcohol or accelerant people had on them. There wasn't much to be had. 
Flags don't actually burn that easily, especially massive ones laid out flat on the road. But the protesters kept working, and slowly but surely they got a small fire going that they began layering the flag onto to keep it rolling. Suddenly, the chanting got louder. The main protest came swinging around the corner, marching straight toward the smaller action. At the time, I thought it must have been an accident. In retrospect, I'm not so sure. Those speakers had been there, knew where this smaller action was. So who was leading the march? Was this planned? It didn't matter so much in the moment. The kids from the large action surrounded the burning flag, taking pictures. Experienced organizers and protesters from the smaller action diffused through the crowd, asking people to put their phones away. Someone threw stones at the courthouse windows, and suddenly those out-of-town organizers and nonprofit representatives sprang into action, scolding people. What are you doing? Think of the news headlines tomorrow. That sort of thing. They actually got physically in the way. Black men in their 50s standing guard at a government building threatened briefly by the young people of color they claimed to represent. This was the moment for me. Something incredible was happening, something I hadn't thought I'd ever witness with my own eyes. The ideological argument we see online and in the news between older Democrats and younger progressives was playing out in real time, with real stakes. Marchers who worship avoidance of property damage pitted against those who had gathered in this place to light a flag on fire because one of their own was held in that very building. It was one of those moments where you feel like you're standing on a precipice, where anything can happen. Eventually, the march moved on without further incident. Some of the medics in Black Block followed them, some headed back to the Capitol. The marchers eventually rallied and headed back down State Street. I went home thinking about what I'd seen that night. Clearly the biggest story, in my mind, was this clash between establishment liberals in positions of power and authority and the hodgepodge conglomeration of protesters mourning their comrades behind bars. Rocks thrown at a courthouse and a flag burning in the street while leaders on both sides participated in a shouting match over megaphones, competing ideologies with a crowd of hundreds of students in play. Anyway, the news the next day said that the protests from the campus marched to the courthouse and started fires, broke windows. That was the whole story. That's what the city heard. There are a lot of problems with media coverage of the ongoing protests. It's not an easy conversation to have. I want to underscore the importance of viewing the news critically, even when it's coming from sources you like and trust. The first problem that night was pretty clearly that the media can only cover events that it knows are happening. The large protest almost certainly sent press releases to all the local stations to ensure cameras would be there. The smaller action was a private affair. This isn't a good enough excuse for misrepresenting what happened. If the news wants to claim to inform us, they necessarily have to cover things that they weren't present to witness. The first night of rioting in Madison at the end of May happened spontaneously. The protester who broke a window didn't send out a press release saying they intended to do so, and the cops didn't tweet that any such action would result in them gassing hundreds of bystanders. How do you report on a story you weren't present to witness? By developing sources, contacts that you can count on to provide verifiable information about what happened. Here's where we run into another problem. Reporters for local news stations are often encouraged to develop positive working relationships with local electeds and police officers to ensure they have access to as many details of newsworthy events as possible. They are not encouraged to do the same thing with the local activist community, at least not with the same enthusiasm. If reporters had an established relationship with the community of Black Lives Matter activists in Madison, it would have been easy to clarify, no, the flag burning was something unrelated. Unfortunately, it might be too late for reporters here to establish some of those relationships. During the first nights of rioting this summer, a staff writer for the Isthmus, a local print publication, filmed people looting stores on State Street and posted those videos unedited to his public Twitter page. 
Some of those videos clearly showed the faces of those doing the looting. Ignoring your opinion of the crime itself, there is precedent of right-wing vigilantes using these sorts of videos to create hit lists. There's a different conversation to be had about how to cover civil unrest and whether or not to post pictures showing the faces of those involved. That doesn't apply here. Videos clearly showing the faces of looters did nothing to inform the public that other, more anonymizing shots couldn't have accomplished just as well. He published their faces for social media engagement. And social media loved it. Dozens of people raced to screen cap faces and disseminate them across other platforms. In 2013, after the Boston Marathon bombings, a similar scramble took place on Reddit. The thought was that with enough eyes sifting through the data, the site could crowdsource an investigation. They wrongly identified Sunil Tripathi, a college student who had gone missing a month before, as a probable suspect. The family of Sunil was quickly inundated with calls from the media and online harassment, including direct threats. Ultimately, it turned out that Sunil had gone missing because he had committed suicide. Thoughtless actions on the part of individual reporters with the potential to result in real bodily harm to protesters aren't uncommon here or in many cities across the country. Some people present at these events also remember the Occupy protests, how local media mocked and ribbed protesters across the country as a joke, took quotes from their own interviews out of context to fit that narrative. Needless to say, there doesn't seem to be an automatic trust for local news among the activist community. Local news stations are chaotic environments where 20-somethings, young professionals, are desperately scrambling to acquire enough experience to transfer to a larger market as soon as their contract ends. They're often assigned an insane number of stories each day, so even if you do send a press release ahead of a direct action and have a reporter show up, they're virtually guaranteed to not have expertise on the issues these protesters are discussing. They're just here to grab a couple interviews and some B-roll to flesh out a story they already have a basic framing in mind for, before racing off to catch a mayoral press conference, and then on to the Rotary Club's fundraiser. Lack of expertise leads to frustrating situations, like the coverage of the fatal shooting of a Patriot Prayer member at a Portland protest. Some news stations took the statements of Joey Gibson, the founder of that group, and published them at face value. Patriot Prayer is a far-right organization that has spent the past four years instigating violence against their perceived enemies, on multiple occasions committing pre-planned, proactive assaults on leftists that have resulted in hospitalizations. They tape this violence and then cut pieces of video together to create propaganda in online right-wing spaces. That may seem unrelated, and national publications are getting better at covering Portland. Many of them are providing context now in their coverage of what's been evolving in that city. But it's not that unrelated. We've seen right-wingers show up to Madison protests with semi-automatic rifles. If one of them was shot, is there any news station in town that would already be familiar with whatever group or militia they claimed affiliation with? Would they have enough information to spot lies or dishonest framing in statements made after the fact? Local media just doesn't have the funding to commit a journalist to do the kind of research required. Reporters are often overworked and underpaid. I think that's why it's so easy for many of them to fall into the trap of false equivalence when reporting these stories. It's also how they end up conflating the demands of all local nonprofits and all local activist groups as one and the same. It's not that they're lazy, necessarily, it's that they simply don't have the time. Not understanding how some of these groups operate leaves those same 20-year-old reporters vulnerable to repeating disinformation or intentional obfuscation on the part of counter-protesters. And there is nothing better for recruitment than getting official news stations to repeat your talking points. Again, this is less a problem with individual reporters and more an issue with the system they're operating in. All that is why it's not on the protesters to reach out and try to develop those relationships with media. It's the other way around. 
At this point, a reporter would need to prove that they're willing to keep showing up, demonstrate their expertise, and consistently illustrate that they won't exercise the same irresponsibility already displayed by other reporters before they could realistically expect to receive any amount of trust from the activist community. I'm not saying it would be easy to develop these sources. I know it's difficult. And I know it takes time to determine whether a potential source can be trusted. But it's important. It's what's right. And if you can't do that, you should at the very least approach police statements with the same standards you approach protesters. Which finally brings us to the single largest issue in the coverage of ongoing protests by local media. Whether intentional or not, local media coverage is nearly always insanely biased in favor of the police. This is illustrated in a number of ways. A great place to start is to look for where the media uses the active voice. For example, protesters started fires and threw rocks through windows of downtown businesses. And where they use the passive voice. For example, crowd control measures were deployed. One is a direct action. Protesters caused property damage. But oh, what's this? Well, tear gas, well, that just happened to appear. It might seem like a small detail, but it implies a lack of responsibility for actions taken by police officers. This helps reinforce the narrative in the mind of the reader that the position of the police and the motivations for their actions are the default, neutral, and therefore completely justified, beyond question or reproach. The police were just there. The tear gas just happened, and no one's responsible for that, so uh, no need for further investigation. Speaking of the police position being neutral, let's talk about how the news consistently publishes police statements without asking questions and frequently without independent verification. Quite often, those statements are presented as unbiased facts. Surely, the facts couldn't lie. It blows my mind that this even needs to be said about these protests. We've seen officers across the country lie repeatedly about the events that have transpired at protests, directly or by omission. But heaven forbid you question or try to verify information from the police because then you risk them icing you out, and later they might not provide those juicy details about shots fired in a suburb. You know, the kind of story that keeps your preferred demographic engaged and watching the advertisements that fund your career. I'm not talking hypothetically here either. I worked production at a news station a number of years ago and remember the weekend anchor speaking disdainfully about a reporter who used to work there. The reporter had treated every interaction with the police like she was trying to catch them in a lie, always asking questions and sticking her nose in wherever she wanted. The police didn't like her and stopped being so willing to talk to the news. Details dried up. That reporter was assigned to a different caseload. This happened in a relatively small city. It's not just major metropolitan areas that deal with this problem. Reporters are encouraged to develop relationships with the police and to be careful when and where you question them, because if you do it wrong, the police stop talking. This would be unacceptable in most other circumstances, but for some reason, local media approach to the police is the exception. If you do this wrong, you risk stalling your entire career. Extrapolate this pattern across years or decades, and the people who move up are the ones that treat the cops a certain way. Very naturally, you end up with entire news stations unwilling, or at the very least hesitant, to question police. On the second night of riots in Madison this summer, reporters swooped in to get a live shot in front of a burning police car and the next day published the police department's statement of facts, which included an inaccurate report of what had happened to that cop car. The cops said that the car was broken into, driven a short distance, then set on fire. In reality, the car was broken into, set on fire, and then some minutes later, an unrelated person threw the car in neutral and coasted it to the middle of an intersection so the fire didn't risk spreading to a nearby building. 
It's a detail that would have been extremely easy to check because there was a video of the event that went locally viral on Twitter. I don't think the cops were trying to lie here. I think they actually believed that part of their statement. They said what they were pretty sure happened without verification, and local journalists, without verification, went ahead and spread that story around. The media also breathlessly reported on the number of cops who were injured. And maybe that would be forgivable if they made any mention at all of the many protesters who were injured instead of just stating, the cops used crowd control measures to attempt to break up protesters. First of all, tear gas is inherently violent. But I personally witnessed scores of injuries amongst protesters. Bangs and scrapes, heat-related distress, all things the police would report as injuries if it happened to one of their own. And that's not to mention, say, the video I have of officers shoving a protester to the ground where he hit his head pretty hard on the pavement. Seems like that should count as an injury. I know that there are no official counts of protesters injured, especially since so many are younger people without health insurance who couldn't afford to go to the hospital if they wanted. But when you have a reporter out there who has seen medics treating injuries amongst protesters, and you don't mention it, but do quote the police chief's comments on injured officers, you are not doing objective journalism. Throwing in a quick, according to the local police chief, does not absolve you of the narrative implied by your omission. And of course, we can't forget the media's incredible bias towards civility. Anyone seen as being disruptive is often cast as the villain, regardless of the context of their actions. We could spend 20 minutes on this point alone, but we're almost out of time, so I'm not going to go too deep down that particular rabbit hole. There are people who study media bias as a career, and it's a fascinating thread to unravel. I'll see if I can find any good articles to share on the show's Twitter uh, if you want to look into it further. All of these problems with the media's coverage of protests and direct actions have led to a huge rise in street journalism, especially on Twitter. A number of freelance journalists have been operating cities across the country for months now, paying their bills with tips they get on Venmo between publishing articles. This can be a great resource, and much of what is shown on video is indisputable. But please, if this is where you're going to get your news, remember that they have bias too. My favorite journalist in the Pacific Northwest right now is Robert Evans, who writes for Bellingcat. His articles are amazingly well-researched, and I've actively directed many of my friends to his podcasts. But watching his live streams from the protest this summer, there were multiple times where he threw out speculation as if it were fact. In later write-ups, everything was verified and factual, but it turns out in the moment, when you're under fire, it can be impossible to remain completely objective and aloof, even for professional journalists. What's important here is to always consume your news critically. Local news provides a helpful lens and regional context to larger issues. A national station, for example, likely wouldn't know much about the local shooting of an unarmed black man by police that our city chants during these protests. Local media is really good at that. Local reporters often have developed relationships with elected officials and nonprofits that allow them access to a level of information I could never get. But they're not necessarily experts on this particular set of issues. They tend to take the police department at their word without independent verification, they're strapped for time, and they often haven't developed relationships amongst the activist community. Freelance journalists on Twitter or elsewhere have the opportunity to become experts on the field in which they specialize, but can lose track of the perspective of the average person. They're also not without biases of their own. So no matter where you get your news, pay attention. Where are people using the passive voice and where is the active voice? What do they independently verify, and what gets passed through with the addendum according to? Is what they're saying speculation or fact? How often do you see them post a story that you later find to have factual errors? Who does this journalist see as the hero of the story? The protesters? The police? The state? The status quo? The point I'm at? 
I trust individual journalists, not journalism. Even with journalists I love, I try to read critically. And I trust my own eyes most. This episode isn't to cry fake news or tell you not to trust your local news station. It's to remind you to never blindly accept a story from someone claiming to be a neutral party. And that the best way to know the truth of the protests is to be there on the ground. That's it for tonight. This has been Riot Etiquette. I'm Brian Boland. Uh, follow the show on Twitter, at Riot Etiquette. Email comments, questions, or suggestions to rioteticate at gmail.com. I did set up a Patreon, if that's the sort of thing you're into. Uh, it's patreon.com slash brianwrites. That's Brian with a Y and write with a W. Brian writes. Brian writes. If you like the show... <laughs> If you like the show, rate it five stars uh, share it with some friends. Um, you know, just all the stuff that every person with a podcast ever tells you to do. Um, thanks for listening. And remember, folks, the smaller shield is the cocktail shield. The larger one is for the ride. God, that is so stupid. Um, all right. <laughs>